0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Anise Chagpar welcomes Dr. Edward Trimble. Dr. Trimble is Director of the Center for Global Health at the National Cancer Institute, and Dr. Chagpar is Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital.
1: So tell us a little bit more about the Center for Global Health at the NCI. What exactly do you do? What's your mission?
2: Well, we were set up five years ago by Dr. Harold Varmus, who was director of of the NCI at that point, and he wanted to strengthen what NCI was doing globally. We've always done uh, cancer research with a global eye. We've always worked with scientists from around the world. But Dr. Varmus wanted to um, increase that uh, that activity and see if we could actually make sure that what our research actually got translated into public policy. So our goals are to um, help ensure that we have a, uh, a strong uh, group of young people coming up who are trained to do research in global health that we have a strong possible portfolio of global health research as a global community, and that the research results actually get translated into public policy.
1: So Dr. Trimble, a lot of our listeners might be thinking, you're the NCI. You're the National Cancer Institute of the United States, and you're funded by taxpayer dollars. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Why is global health important? Why not invest those dollars for research here at home?
2: Well, we find, you know, that, that there are different patterns of cancer around the world. So sometimes we can study things better outside the United States than we can inside the United States. Um, we are a nation of immigrants, and we have people from all over the world living here, people of different genetics, different environmental exposures. And so if we work uh, with other countries around the world, we can actually understand cancer better.
1: And do you find that some of the work that you do in other countries can actually translate into low-resource populations here at home?
2: Absolutely. Uh, as you know, we have a very disparate population. We have rich people and poor people. We have people in, in rural settings who have difficulty accessing health care. Um, and so we've some of the things that we've learned working in other countries can, can definitely help us in the United States.
1: So... And tell us a little bit more about the different cancers that you see around the world. Um, Are they similar to what we see here in the US, or are they different?
2: Well, many of them are similar. I mean, for example, the um, lung cancer that you get from smoking cigarettes is similar around the world. Uh, Cervical cancer, which is caused by the HPV vaccine, is really very similar around the world. But there are some unusual patterns, some of which we understand, some of which we don't. In India, for example, both men and women, often of lower socioeconomic status, chew tobacco, often uh, with a beetle quid or a rica nut. So they have a very high incidence of oral cancer. We don't see that much in the United States. Um, but uh, So that's something that is unique really to South Asia and, and East Asia, Southeast Asia. There are also some patterns, for example, in uh, Guatemala has very high rates of liver cancer and gastric cancer. We're still trying to figure out what causes that. In Chile, they have very high rates of of gallbladder cancer. Um, And again, we don't quite understand, so we're working with our colleagues in Chile to see if we can better understand what causes that high rate of of gallbladder cancer there.
1: You know, when people think about um, global health, uh, many people think about diseases like HIV, they think about malaria, they think about TB, for a lot of people, cancer isn't on the on the radar when they think about global health. Should it be?
2: Absolutely. Um, what we've as as we start um, working with countries around the world and helping them improve their systems of health surveillance, they have found that things like diabetes and heart disease and stroke and cancer actually convey real um, problems for them. And in many of the what we would call developing countries, when you look at the data, they actually have more deaths from from cancer, from heart disease, from stroke, from diabetes, from road traffic injury than they do from infectious diseases.
1: And is that because we've made so many advances in infectious diseases in these countries that people are living longer so that they actually are dying of cancers?
2: In part. Um, We definitely have made progress in reducing the number of of, uh, women dying in childbirth, of deaths under age five, um, as well as from from infectious diseases. We have better treatment now for TB, for malaria, for HIV. So people are living longer. We also know that in, in many of these countries that have a problem with infectious disease, that some of those infections can go on to cause cancer, such as hepatitis B and C, such as uh, human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer. So many of these countries face kind of a double whammy of um, cancers from infectious disease as well as from cancers from associated with more of a Western lifestyle.
1: So what do you think are the top five priorities for reducing global cancer burden around the world?
2: Well, I think tobacco control is, is would be first on everybody's list, in part because we know that stopping chewing tobacco, stopping smoking tobacco can dra- can reduce the risk of lung cancer, um, oral cancer, um, esophageal cancer, stomach cancer, head and neck cancer, cervical cancer. There, there are so many um, cancers associated with, with tobacco. So probably tobacco is the most important thing. Also because decreasing smoking can decrease your risk of heart disease, of chronic lung disease. So I would put tobacco highest on my list. Next, I would put um, encouraging a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet, activity, Um, decreasing obesity, because we know obesity is is a major risk factor, again, for diabetes, for heart disease, as well as for cancer. Um, And unfortunately, as people have have grown more prosperous, they've adopted our unhealthy Western lifestyle um, with inactivity and too many processed foods. Um, So we need to get people exercising. We need to get people eating more of a healthy diet. There are also, number three on my list would be rolling out what we know in terms of prevention. We've talked about prevention through tobacco control, but we also have vaccines that can present cancer. The hepatitis B vaccine will prevent infection with hepatitis B, which is one of the major causes of liver cancer. And the new human papillomavirus vaccine will prevent cervical cancer, as well as about half of cases of oropharyngeal cancer and um, anal cancer, which are also associated with with HPV infection. So rolling out those vaccines are particularly important. Um, The next I I would put on my list is is, uh, making Screening, early diagnosis, and treatment available. We know we have good screening for cervical cancer, for uh, colon cancer. We know how to uh, we can diagnose breast cancer early. So, if we can um, move to help countries move toward uh, population-based screening programs for cervical cancer and colorectal cancer, we're appropriate screening programs for uh, breast cancer through mammography. If mammography is is not appropriate for the country, then we would certainly recommend timely evaluation of breast masses to to make sure that we can diagnose breast cancer early.
1: And finally, one more?
2: One more? Okay. Um, I, I think improve in general. We know that we can improve... Um, cancer outcomes by health system strengthening, making sure that they're good surgeons, they're good anesthesiologists, good pathologists. There's access to medicines, access to radiation therapy, um, access to good laboratory medicine. Um, so, and and this can help with road traffic injury. It can help with fixing broken broken arms. It can help with uh, with treatment of diabetes and heart disease. So, so I think we really need to help countries build an effective health care system that can help them treat cancer, can treat the symptoms associated with cancer, provide good palliative care.
1: Yeah. It seems like, you know, at least the first of uh, the first four on your list are things that we would talk about here in the U.S. as well, right? Tobacco control, improving healthy lifestyles, uh, getting screened early for uh, cancers that are screenable, um, and, uh, and vaccines. These are things that we talk about here at, at Yale Cancer Center Answers all the time in terms of things that we can do here in our population. What makes it different or difficult uh, in other parts of the world? Certainly, the, the last issue of not having the infrastructure or the health system um, certainly plays into that, I would think.
2: Well, I mean, I would I would argue that the fifth issue is one that we confront every day in the U.S. too, because Mm -hmm. we have people who don't have health insurance. We have people who live long distances from from health clinics. Uh, We have people that um, have difficulty complying with uh, their Recommendations for screening for um, and getting their prescriptions filled. So I think we have to um, learn from other countries as to how we can strengthen our own healthcare system. So I think it's all um, you know we share um, uh, we share problems and we can learn from 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 many countries ar- around the world.
1: What what things make different uh, countries unique, A- and what are some of the the uh, nuances that you find in low to middle income countries that make cancer control more difficult or different than it is here
2: well I mentioned the um, how in South and in East Asia people chew tobacco often mixed with beetle quid and areca nuts so I mean that's something that, that we don't see here and so yeah. and we don't have a whole lot of expertise but we're working with those countries to try to figure out how to, how to help people stop chewing um, the tobacco quid or whatever, and how to screen for oral cancer. So, I mean, that, that's something that's, that's, um, with it, that I think is that, that we don't see here, that, that we do see, uh, yeah. see, see elsewhere. Another issue that is fascinating from an epidemiologic perspective is the role of another infection, Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. In the U.S., we see it in um, rep- most often as mononucleosis. You know, something that is transmitted um, through uh, among adolescents and college kids. It's the nickname is the kissing disease or whatever, and it's relatively benign. I mean, it's it's people feel. Um, fatigue for, for some months, but then it goes away, and, and they live their lives without any problems. But in Africa, we see a much earlier transmission of EBV, and there it's associated with an increased risk of, um, of Burkitt lymphoma. And so we don't know quite why that is. There's some interaction with malaria exposure as well. In East Asia, Epstein-Barr virus is associated with an increased risk of nasopharyngealoma, um, uh, um, and and so we and uh, that's another and we just don't understand why is the same virus mm-hmm. doing different, different things. things in different parts of the world. It's 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 a it's a mystery. I mean, but but it's something that we can work together with partners around the world to help us figure out that that mystery.
1: What about the cultural issues? I, I mean, it seems to me, in talking to uh, some of my colleagues from around the world, particularly, for example, um, talking to some of my colleagues in Ghana, uh, where they say, you know what, when uh, when somebody is suspected of having a mass or not feeling well or or whatever, they will go to the traditional healer uh, first, and 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 there seems to be at least in this person perception a distrust between traditional healers and Western medicine, such that you'd go to the traditional healer and the traditional healer will say, well, don't go to the Western medicine doctor, you'll die. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, is that they present so late that that's actually true because there are limited therapies uh, to treat these cancers. I want to get your feedback on that and so much more. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about global oncology with my guest, Dr. Edward Trimble.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working side by side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at astrazeneca us.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk for a familial or hereditary cancer receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Smilo Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program is comprised of an interdisciplinary team that includes geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together with the goal of providing cancer risk assessment and taking steps to prevent the development of cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Edward Trimble. We're talking about global oncology, and right before the break, I was thinking about the differences between health care, particularly as it pertains to cancer here in the U.S., versus in low- to middle-income countries, and was thinking about... Um, one of the comments that a colleague of mine in Ghana had mentioned, which is the fact that most people will go to their traditional healers in Ghana. And there tends to be a mistrust between traditional healers and Western medicine, such that this colleague of mine told me that when people go to the traditional healer, uh, they will be told, now don't go to the Western medicine people, you'll die. And the fact is that about 87% of people, uh, particularly with breast cancer in Ghana present with stage three or four disease, which tends to be not as well treatable as people who present with earlier stage disease. And so it sends, tends to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't go to the doctor because you're going to die. If you go to the doctor, you've got late stage, you still die. And so on and on it goes. And so it, it fuels this mistrust. How do we address those kinds of issues, Dr. Trimble?
2: Well, I think there there are two ways. One is by we need to look at the the U.S. Um, experience, and certainly there was a terrible stigma associated with cancer in the U.S. and we've overcome that stigma because in part because of the experience of people like Nancy Reagan and Happy Rockefeller. I mean, prominent women who had breast cancer. And we willing to talk about the fact that they had breast cancer and they survived their breast cancer treatment. So uh, so I think having um, a population of people who are willing to talk about their cancer experience and the fact that they're alive and well now is really important both in the U.S., in other developed countries, and in the d- developing world. So I think one issue is you have to find the, 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 the people who are willing to speak out about the fact that cancer is not a death sentence, that I was treated for cancer and, and now I'm here and I'm living my life. I think we also have to have a more effective partnership with traditional medical practitioners. It's important to remember that often the traditional healers are available, they're close by, they speak the same language as the patient, and they don't charge an arm and a leg for treatment. Mm-hmm. So it's understandable that that you would go to see the traditional medicine doctor first. Um, so I think it's important for us t- not to... to consider those people as the enemy, Mm -hmm. but rather as potential partners, Mm -hmm. that we need to educate them about the signs and symptoms of cancer when it's appropriate to refer uh, for breast masses, for vaginal bleeding, for rectal bleeding, so that they can get a timely diagnosis of cancer. It's also important to remember that we can use the traditional medicine practitioners to help maintain quality of life and patient adherence when people are undergoing standard treatment. We know there are side effects from cancer. Well, the some of the traditional medicine practices may have a placebo effect. Some of them may have a real effect. We certainly routinely refer our patients now for things like acupuncture and yoga. Those were considered you know weird and and bizarre but we did the studies to show that they actually help improve symptoms of people undergoing cancer therapy so i think you know we also have a partnership with a number of countries particularly china and india to help evaluate traditional medicine practices to see can they improve quality of life can they treat a person's symptoms and in some cases we find that traditional medicine um, actually, has therapeutic effect. I mean, one of, as you know, one of the things that we use to treat malaria, artemisin, was derived from traditional Chinese medicine for fever. Mm-hmm. So I think, and and a number of the medicines that we routinely use today, aspirin, morphine, a number of the chemotherapeutic agents such as taxol, came from natural products. So I, so we can't. I mean, we have to admit that there's some good things out there in traditional medicine and traditional um, medical practice that, that we need to look very carefully at.
1: Yeah, and I think that the idea of the, the partnership and really understanding that people's disease occurs within a cultural context, and so they trust the traditional healers as, as part of that cultural milieu, and how we embrace that culture and weave a partnership uh, becomes Very important. And it seems to me that there are other issues that are specific in low to middle income countries that make it more difficult. And I don't know how you overcome some of these things. So, for example, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, another friend of mine uh, was in Ghana and noted that, you know, running water is not uh, common. Uh, in all places in Ghana, I had a friend of mine who was a surgeon from Nigeria who came to visit and was telling me that uh, electricity is unreliable. And I, I said to her, "I said, so what do you do when you're in the operating room when the electricity goes out? Light is useful when mm-hmm. operating." And she said, "Well, everybody pulls out their cell phone." But but how do you how do you overcome some of those issues in terms of infrastructure? And is that really uh, a mandate that the cancer community has to take on, or is that another place where it really it, it, it really is important to forge partnerships um, to to build infrastructure so that you can improve global health? Yeah,
2: well, I think it's the latter. I mean, I think we have to build partnerships. I mean, we yes, we we surgery is a modality we use every day to treat cancer, but it's also a modality we need to um, for to treat broken bones or to um, do an a- appendectomy or to do a C-section. So we have to work with the global health community to say, well, how do we improve access to surgery and access to anesthesia? How do we make sure that there's a functioning blood bank or that there's a laboratory test that can check someone's um, hematocrit? Um, so I think the these are those are bigger issues that have great relevance for cancer but are not Unique to cancer, um, there are some novel technologies in terms of um, solar-powered devices that that can help um, power an anesthesia machine that can help power a, a, a bovie. Um, so I think there's some there, there are some approaches that um, are very promising in terms of uh, for use in in low resource settings, but as you said we need electricity i mean it, it's hard to practice medicine nowadays without source of electricity without clean water without the right surgical instruments without the right um the, uh, out the right medicine so we have to figure out how can we learn from our uh, from our friends in private industry let's say and our friends in the in let's say the us military on supply chain management mm-hmm. so we actually get the right have the all the supplies we need to um, to diagnose cancer to, to treat cancer to help treat the symptoms of, of, of the people have
1: yeah the the other issue though it seems to me is that when you think about global infrastructure in terms of health systems hospitals uh, provision of care electricity mm-hmm. clean water much of that relies on the state uh, the country itself governmental mm-hmm. organizations Um. And many people, or some people, I'll say, um, uh, in these low-to-middle-income countries, um, r- they have concerns about um, corruption of governments, um, lack of uh, progress in terms of moving in those areas. Does the NCI and the U.S. government, in their partnerships with um, other governmental organizations around the world uh, have some capacity to help these countries move forward so that they can provide better population health?
2: Well, I think we work very closely with other, certainly other parts of the U.S. government, such as USAID, such as U.S. CDC, such as our Department of State, um, which have very... um, clear guidelines and programs to help improve governance and improve um, the appropriate use of um, the facilities the health budget to make sure that that people are um, treated as as they should be um, so we try to make sure that our um, we help generate the appropriate Research to guide what the public health practice should be, and then work with partners in terms of making sure that that's implemented, and and that the um, governments um, have made the appropriate commitments. But I think that but this is a big issue. Um, the other thought that occurred to me um, is that we know that in many countries, including the United States, much health care is delivered in the, by the private sector. <laughs> so we need to be working to make sure that that private sector is functioning as effectively as possible, is providing good care, um, but, it, but and, and exploring the possibility for public-private partnerships. Again, as you were speaking about, you know, you know how to make sure that there's electricity or that there that there's the supplies there. I mean, we know, for example, that companies such as, you know, Coca-Cola can deliver the syrup and the the CO2 to almost every place around the world. And they do. And they (laughs) do. Or Amazon. (laughs) I mean, I mean, that, that there's a there's a commercial side of things that knows how to do that supply chain management what well, we need to learn from them you know can we use you know the Coca-Cola distribution system to help us get vaccines you know yeah. in the cold chain around the world so so we need to be creative I mean this is you know to look at what what else is happening in society yeah
1: mm-hmm. no I think that that's an excellent point I mean when you were thinking when you were talking about the the top 5 priorities and we were thinking about number 2 was obesity and I thought you know, there's a there's a McDonald's in every country I know of. Mm-hmm. um and yet um there isn't necessarily optimal health care in every country. And so, how can we learn how to do that better? the The other issue is um is really that healthcare relies on a, a certain amount of expertise. and and the other issue tends to be the brain drain. So um people in these countries um often uh, are not having, Uh, The best quality of life. Uh, Many of these countries um, are the subject of abject poverty. And so, uh, you know, bright young students will leave, uh, come to the U.S., go to Europe, uh, get educated and rarely will return back. Uh, to their countries to provide care. And so many of these countries suffer a shortage of physicians. And when you look at the WHO ratio of physician to population, um, they're well below uh, what is considered to be optimal. Any suggestions for how we can improve that?
2: Well, I think it's important that countries understand the, um, that they need to treat their doctors and their nurses well. They need to pay them a living wage, and they need to make sure that their working conditions are acceptable and give them a pat on the back for, for their hard work because it is really hard to um, to deliver good care day in, day out. I was just in, in Kenya where the doctors are on strike now in their sixth oh week of a strike because they were promised a, a wage to bring them up to a living um, wage three years ago, that wage has not showed up. And the doctors are saying, look, we can't afford to put food on the table or send our kids oh. to school. Um, in You know, where is this raise that you promised you would give us? So I think it, you know, we, yes, you're absolutely right. We do see a, a, a brain drain and that will continue to happen unless people are, you know, are given an appropriate salary and, and good working conditions.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, there's the the cycle of we can't pay you a good wage because, you know, the country is very poor. The country is very poor because we have uh, poor health. We have poor health because we don't have
2: uh, Mm. a a decent workforce. Yeah. But I think we've seen some good examples of countries that have invested in workforce development, invested in health care. Often had a you know a thriving private sector, so they are good private hospitals and clinics, as well as decent uh, public hospitals and clinics. And so I think there's um, there are some examples of how um, countries have made a commitment to um, look after their doctors and nurses, and their um, and as well and build a cadre of community health workers who can help augment what the doctors and nurses do.
0: Dr. Edward Trimble is director of the Center for Global Health at the National Cancer Institute. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.